This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of In-Series, and this is an insanity episode. Ah, and um. Now, when I say insanity, I mean all senses of that turn of phrase, so insanity as in madness. Ah, insanity as in saneness. Um, and insanity, which is In-Series' own peculiar brand of sanity. We'll talk about that in a moment. Before we get started, I want to get caught up on a few things. I'm back again in my closet here in Mount Pleasant, the neighborhood of Washington, D.C., where I live, and where we continue to be in a state of lockdown out of a communal will to protect ourselves and our neighbors from illness of the COVID-19 virus, of course. In the process of that, I don't know about you, but I am learning a whole host of new skills, new ideas, uh, having scales of old assumptions on the way things are done because they've always been done that way. Dutch folks, I'm looking at you. Falling from my eyes and from the conversations I've been having, I feel other organizations, arts, spiritual, commercial, and I'm going to hope even governmental as well as individuals are having a similar experience during this time. I hope we'll, we'll talk about that in a few moments. One of the things I'm learning and adopting into a practice is not being ashamed as I make goals, ways to survive all this and even grow from it, and then see those goals quickly fall away. I have not made it past Titus Andronicus in my reading of the complete plays of William Shakespeare. I admit uh, being hung up a bit on the, uh, on the Henrys and the histories, old habits die hard. And I have not made it past story 10 of the Decameron. Uh, I have also realized that one podcast a week is goal enough. A daily intro to opera might have been a touch too ambitious, though I am proud to have done all of the Wagner week of the Metropolitan Opera. That being said, even though I have not watched every night of the Met streaming broadcasts, um, opera, as it should be remembered, is also something one can have too much of. I have tuned in some this previous week, uh, and I'll give you a brief recap of what I saw. I hope to hear from from our listeners as to what you might have seen and your thoughts. Uh, first this week, after taking a few days off, I tuned into The Pearl Fishers. It's, a, it's an opera I love very much. I've, I've directed it. Um, I think it is deeply underrated, and I was reminded again as I watched this production of what an incredible score it is. It gets sort of short shrift because it is, um, because of course the duet is the most famous piece from it. It happens in the first 15 minutes of the opera, um, and people tend to, to, to think he, he wasted the best music in the first couple of minutes and, and the rest is not up to par. That is absolutely not true. The music continues on an incredible high level. Um, the, the, the famous tenorari, of course, in act one, the tenor soprano duet Shana in the, in the second act, which ends with the choral storm scene, um, the third act, uh, baritone aria, baritone soprano duet, Shana again, where you can feel Bizet writing the fourth act or figuring out how to write the fourth act of Carmen. Um, that choral uh, melody, which is based on the, the duet, of course, and comes back over and over again. It is uh, uh, 
score of incredible economy uh, and emotional power and connected to a story which again gets short shrift where we think of it as a as a trite orientalism which um the latter it may be but it is a story of uh very streamlined um tense uh, dramatic situation again very economic you could do the piece with three singers actually although one would miss the chorus quite a bit um it it is perhaps difficult to produce in any way that is at all a literal uh transformation of what's on the page because it is set in ancient ceylon which is sri lanka um and it has references to um uh, at least one part of the Hindu deity. No, I think it also refers to Shiva it, during the Sopranos first act aria. Um, and of course, Brahma is um, all over the, the text. Um, I have to say, as much as I love this piece, and I hope that's clear from my, from my uh, 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 description of it, that this production... Um, Wow, really bothered me. Um, it's beautifully done, first of all, um, and much of the singing was was fantastic. Um, even if I didn't completely agree with the casting, um, I one of my first blogs last year when I arrived in DC was about a a local company's production of the Pearl Fishers, which was again excellently sung, very smartly reduced, um, beautifully conducted, um, and played by by a small ensemble. But seeing a bunch of white performers dressed up as ancient Hindus, uh, I say that hesitantly because there were also projections of the Buddha, um, which um, confuses an already confusing state uh, situation because, of course, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country now, and even though these would have been, I guess, most Tamil fishermen, um, it gets confusing. I, I found it difficult. Um, then I was criticized for having said that, but I still found it difficult. Um, I think some of that is tied into France's own colonialist past and sort of a historical context and collective knowledge of what France was doing in the Far East um, during the time when this opera was written makes it difficult or more difficult to, to watch that. Now, the production of the Metropolitan Opera was directed by a British uh, director named Penny Woolcock. Um, she uh, had not, I don't think, directed opera before, except this production, which originated at the English National Opera uh, before being brought up by the Met. Um, she had directed a film version of Dr. Atomic. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, The Death of Klinghoffer, which, of course, is John Adams' second opera. I believe that the relationship with the Met happened because Peter Gelb and Peter Sellers um, do not get along. Um, Peter Gelb wanted to do Dr. Atomic, um, which we talked about last week, John Adams' later opera about the Trinity uh, test uh, experiment during the Manhattan Project at the Metropolitan Opera. He did not want Peter Sellers to direct the, the piece, and at the time, Peter's was the only production in circulation, and hired Penny Woolcock because she had a history directing John Adams having done a film version of The Death of Klinghoffer, and now she returned to the Met to do this production of, uh, of The Pearl Fishers, set in a modern, we would imagine, I suppose, Sri Lanka, a shanty town on the beach, a fisherman village, 
um, but in the modern uh, Southeast Asia with, with the iconography uh, we all know. Um, the storm scene, of course, ends with a tsunami, a tidal wave that we are meant to imagine is the horrific early 2000s tidal wave that killed almost 300,000 people in, in Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, I found it almost, no, decidedly, I found it decidedly more problematic to watch a bunch of white people, very wealthy, very privileged people, um, pretend to be impoverished Southeast Asians. That to me is really deeply problematic, and I'll go ahead and say it is offensive, um, no matter how beautiful the production was and how well sung it was. Um, I also found um, depicting the election of um, Zorga, which opens the first act, as being rigged and him paying for votes um, to be a very problematic um, assumption or criticism for privileged white people from Western European um, society to make against Southeast Asians. I also found um, that there is a there is the uh, tidal wave, the tsunami that I just spoke about, at the end of the second act, and the third act opens with the same characters, all fine, all alive, simply a little wet. I found that to be maybe the most problematic thing about this production. That being said, it, it was beautifully, um, the set is beautiful, um, the uh, singing was lovely, um, the orchestra Phenomenal. I believe it was Fabio Luisi, though I might be wrong about that. The next night I tuned in for Macbeth, um, a, a wonderful piece. I remember liking it more than I liked it in this production. This was with Ananda Trepko, who I was suspicious about her singing this role. She sounded fantastic, I have to admit, though it could have been a little more subtle. Um, I did miss Leonucci as, as Rigoletto, um, but uh, it is a, a fantastic score. Um, of, of, of a fantastic piece um, and Verdi's first um, love song to Shakespeare. The production is by the British director Adrian Noble, who I know from having directed a touring, very acclaimed production of uh, The Return of Ulysses with uh, William Christie and Les Orfraissons, but who was also the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I guess the Royal Shakespeare Company. And... Um, uh, was an obvious choice for this. It had sort the production has sort of the trappings of the tropes or the cliches, depending on where you fall, of uh, British theater, Shakespeare theater of the latter half of the latter half of the twentieth century. Um, but um, very beautiful and for the Met, very um, uh, adventurous. Let us say. Uh, night before last, I watched La Panchula de West. A uh, piece which I knew only by reputation and had avoided because I'm not a Puccini fan, um, uh, and particularly not of late Puccini. Um, though I have to admit, it is um, it's a pretty stunning piece. Um, it's not a great plot, um, and the score is lacks the um, 
tunefulness, for lack of a better word, uh, that we expect from Puccini. Um, but but quite compelling score. Um, I know that people like Toscanini even considered it to be Puccini's magnum opus. He also considered it one of his best pieces. Uh, the lead role of Minnie was sung by Debbie Voigt, who we saw last week in Brunhilde um, in the Ring Cycle, and uh, who, yeah, I, I am floored by her every time. Um, it is not a warm, round voice, at least not now, um, but it is powerful, and her acting is, is really, really lovely. She's a lovely stage presence. Opposite her was Marcello Giordano, who, of course, passed away this year, one of the Mets' uh, staple tenors. I have not liked his Pinkerton. I really have not liked his Faust in the Berlioz. Um, but this, um, this Dick was quite... Um, quite uh, well sung, well acted. There was clearly chemistry between he and Debbie Voigt. The rest of the cast was fantastic. The set, gorgeous. I can't recommend it enough. And last night, I started Falstaff. Every time I encounter late Verdi, I had the same experience with Washington National Opera, seeing Othello this year. One has to just fall gobsmacked in front of Verdi. It is incredible piece. Um, this is a great cast. Um, Angela Mead is Alice. Um, Stephanie Blythe is Quickly. Um, and Ambrogio Maestri is Falstaff. He is phenomenal. The acting, the physicality, the, the uh, let alone the singing. Not a singer I was aware, I was familiar with terribly. Um, amazing. The production by Robert Carson, the Canadian director, who is one of the first directors that I loved. I've since uh, have a more nuanced take on his productions, but they are always beautiful. Um, what pops to mind, the Ruzalka from Paris, the Alcina from Paris, he did a lot for Paris, the Le Boreade of Rameau from Paris. Um, he did a Puccini cycle, which was his big break for the Flemish opera, um, a Tannhauser, which I was less in love with, that I saw in Barcelona. Um, but he, he is a, a beautiful um, stage painter. Um, and this production is very witty and very smart, especially for what one is used to coming out of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I have not finished watching it. I will do so today, I hope, um, before they change over to tonight's production, which is um, the Gounod Romeo and Juliet, um, which I probably will not be watching. It's not my not up my alley. Um, but they make that change at 630, and hopefully I will finish the fall stuff by then. And why did I not finish watching Falstaff? Well, we are in the budgeting process for next season, which is in many, many ways insanity, the ah kind. Um, first of all, to be budgeting this late, it is um, April, and myself, along with all of my colleagues, are re-budgeting um, next season. We have no idea what next season could be. Um, we're still throwing ideas. We are in this strange, perilous, but I have to say also deeply exciting time um, of replanning everything, questioning everything. We are literally questioning everything. We are, um, we being the arts community, are very literally and even universally, I can say, uh, without an idea how to plan or budget for next season. Um, that is, of course, uh, unnerving or can be unnerving, but it can also be viewed as a, um, a unique possibility to plan for what otherwise would seem impossible. B 
because no one has an idea of what is possible. Everything is possible at this moment. For companies like InSeries, by which, um, yes, I mean deeply innovative and intentional, but by which I also mean small, of course, we are better poised to weather this storm unscathed. Um, and since we have the luxury to spend this time not worrying about, for instance, how to maintain a building in the coming months or how to meet a payroll for the next two months, we can spend real time meditating on what the future possibilities are out there for, for our art form. Um, not just the in institution, but the art form itself uh, of, of opera, of music, theater. Um, we also, of course, have the... Um, organizational flexibility to make those changes and to do so quickly. Um, this changes the whole budgeting process, of course. First of all, we're able to throw out an entire budget and to say, okay, what do we do now? Um, and to merge the quantitative and the qualitative into a creative experience of budgeting. No longer the drudgery, but actually the key to coming up with new ideas and seeing how Numbers can change the art form and change our institutions, and the reverse, how, how the art form changes changes the numbers. Um, this is what I mean by in insanity, as in in-series particular view of sanity, looking at the thing, whatever the thing is, from the other direction and seeing chaos as finally an opportunity to, to innovate in meaningful ways. Now, as anyone who knows me knows, and it's one of the first thing I said to to uh, the board of, of InSeries when, when they um, approached me about this position, poetry is my prayer. It's the way I enter into the liminal spaces, for instance, that we talked about in the last episode. Poetry puts me in sanity. It puts me into sanity, as in the om kind of sanity. Uh, it does so now. It's done so at the most chaotic and blurred moments of my life. Um, one of my favorite poets, it will surprise no one to find out, is Rumi, uh, whose works formed the basis of our in-series production, The Tale of Zerse, last season. Now, three years ago, I took a seven-month journey through India, backpacking. I began in Chennai, which is a city uh, on the Bay of Bengal um, in the south during their December festival, Music and Dance. Every December they have a four-week festival. The first two weeks are of classic Hindustani Indian music, and the second two weeks are of Bharatnatyam, which is um, a style of South Indian representational and uh, even liturgical, usually, um, dance. Um, I started there because the director, Peter Sellers, who, who I'm fortunate enough to call a friend and mentor, um, commanded me to do so and 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 um and uh, had said that it was very important to him also the choreographer mark morris tends to go every year to to be inspired there um so i journeyed there first spent a month at the festival and then went around india without any plans going to temple sites which are a passion of mine um spending one of those months uh, backpacking with my father which of course was the ultimate experience the experience of a lifetime and even spending a month in a guru kul uh, which is an ashram of sorts, learning Drupad singing. Drupad singing, um, which you hear here, um, is the oldest form of music in the world, according to practitioners of it, of course. And it is it, it starts with a slow, almost hour-long exploration of a single scale. 
that evolves gradually faster and faster into a whirling impersonation of the Vena, which is an ancient lute. All of that's improvised, and finally, at the very end, you get a small composed piece, um, uh, uh, which is a, a few minutes in length, you know, maybe five or six minutes. So the proportions of it are very different than any other type of, of Indian classical music. Uh, my husband jokes that this was my eat, pray, love trip, be that as it may. Uh, I have been reminded this week of the the work, the poetic works, which I was reading at the time since Facebook has been giving me three-year reminders each day of the posts that I made during that trip. And one of these is from Rumi, uh, but I think it speaks across ten centuries, almost, right to the core of the moment in which we are living. And what is... Um, well, maybe necessarily bringing to the arts um, a call to to change and to to innovate and to make new and to rip down what has been there. The quote is, "Tear down this house. A hundred thousand new houses can be built from the transparent yellow carnelian buried beneath it, and the only way to get to that is to do the work of demolishing and then digging under the foundations." With that value in hand, new construction can begin. And anyway, sooner or later, this house will fall on its own. The jewel treasure will be uncovered, but it will not be yours. The buried wealth is your pay for doing the pick and the shovel work. I don't think there can be any clearer way of articulating um, how I'm feeling about our calling to make art that is new, that... Um, requires tearing down the structures which are poison anyway by which um, this art has been made for four or five hundred years and to find a new way um, and I'm choosing to look at uh, what we're going through um, from the flip side from what um, what can emerge out of this tilled finally tilled soil um, now the other thing about budgeting uh, which is creative and responsive, um, is that it takes time. It can't be rushed any more than any other creative act, and uh, it takes a quiet expanse of temporal space. And for that reason, I am going to keep this podcast short. It's also, of course, Holy Week, uh, which for those of us in the Christian tradition, and particularly those of us who work in making working uh, worship experiences in the Christian tradition, this is the fullest time of the year. Um, it is a week with four services to plan and to um, pull off, and particularly during the during this um, this peculiar time when we're learning new skills and approaching the challenges of the moment in ways that are meaningful. Um, but also require learning. Um, there's an added pressure, of course. The Passion Season is an amazing time when uh, sorrow and hope are entwined into one communal experience, um, clarifying um, and liminal experience. And I find that particularly true in this Passion Season, which is so full of sadness and confusion of knowing the scope of what we do not know, which is... Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, um, the most shattering um, part of all of this. Um, in that, in that light, another three-year-old Facebook quote from said "Eat, Pray, Love" trip 
comes um, comes from uh, John Donne, who who we talked about last week. Um, there is a kind of simplicity in tears, which God hearkens to and believes in. God hears the tears of that sorrowful soul, which for sorrow cannot shed tears. That's the passion season, and that's particularly this passion season. So, uh, the pressures of Holy Week are another reason I'm going to keep this podcast short, or shorter than my others, I should say. Uh, and in exchange for your indulgence for that fact, I'm going to share with you um, a beautiful uh, secret. Last year, we produced The Tale of Zerse, which was a reworking of Handel's opera Zerse, infused with the poetry of Rumi and was a meditation on um, love, on sacrifice, on um, giving up everything so that one may gain something, um, on Persia and, uh, of course, on Sufism and, and, and Rumi. Um, key to my... Uh, discovery of that of, of, of that piece um, was meeting Fatima uh, Keshvaris, who is um, the world's leading Rumi scholar. Um, she is the head of Persian studies at uh, University of Maryland, but uh, at the time, and I believe still, is chair of the uh, language department at University of Maryland. She is truly a, a luminary and has become a close friend. And something she does is a podcast called Radio Rumi, where she talks about Rumi, but but the intersection in his writings and his philosophy and what we are experiencing in the everyday um, of our lives. Um, this has been particularly powerful in the last two episodes of this podcast, where she speaks of um, of sickness of pandemic and and what Rumi um, says and might have said and what we can glean what wisdom we can glean from that um, I encourage you with the fullness of of my heart that you look up radio Rumi you can do so of course in the iTunes store on SoundCloud um, I have subscribed to it um, if you are listening to this from um, from uh, a Facebook post, I will include a link in the the um, info section so that you can find um, Fatima's wonderful soul um, healing, wellness giving um, balm of a podcast, and I encourage you to to listen to that. Now, I always end this podcast by referring to Tagore reminding you that civility is the first work of art and encouraging all of us to make our lives civil and thereby to make themselves into works of art. In this moment, uh, I suppose civility means coming into a communion with our neighbors through solitude, as we talked about last week. Uh, I am going to sign off this week with Tagore, but with a different quote, which is also from the essay Creative Unity, from which... Um, from which his comments on civility uh, are the opening. Um, this is a, a quote which, again, Facebook flung at me this year from my Eat, Pray, Love trip, of which I will say I refuse to be embarrassed. Is there anything better, after all, than eating, praying, or loving? Anyway, from Rabindranath Tagore.
But when we find our center in our soul by the power of self-restraint, by the force that harmonizes all warring elements and unifies those that are apart, then all our isolated impressions reduce themselves to wisdom, and all our momentary impulses of heart find their completion in love. Then all the petty details of our life reveal an infinite purpose, and all our thoughts and deeds unite themselves inseparably in an internal harmony. Until next week, friends, civility in solitude in which none of us are alone.